please do take a seat. My name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's Fireside. I'd like to welcome you. It's great to hear you singing. Um, being here, masked, unmasked, you're very welcome uh, however you come this morning. It's great to see you. We're going through um, a series through Exodus, through the wilderness wanderings of uh, the Israelites. And today we are looking at the Ten Commandments. I wonder how that made you feel as you heard those. Fear? Guilt? sinking kind of in the pit of your stomach. Well, if you're not a regular here today, perhaps you're thinking, this is exactly why I don't come to church. I don't need to ruin my weekend by coming to church. I feel enough guilt in my life, thank you very much, without you telling me about the Ten Commandments today. I want to say, I hear you. I hear you. Um, perhaps there is a temptation. Shall I just not bother today? Shall I take the week off and maybe just go straight to the picnic and spike ball, which we're promised later? <laughs> well, we're going to go for it, okay? And we want to kind of see it in a, in a way that gives some sort of life, because I think that's what the intention of, of these commands are, what the law is supposed to do. People have mixed ideas, don't they, of, of the Ten Commandments. On the one hand, um, it's famous. It's a famous symbol um, and landmark in the Bible, our North American neighbors uh, down south have them on buildings, don't they? The Ten Commandments, just so you know where they stand on things. On the other hand, it's kind of an epitome of ancient religious standards, one that can feel like top-down oppression and dominance, and we don't really like that, do we? Whatever you think about them, whatever you know about them, you might not know exactly what the Ten are, but you know enough to have an opinion for atheists or anti-theists, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments are an example of, as the late Christopher Hitchens calls it, unalterable celestial dictatorship. Why would you follow a God like that? So God's law has been problematic for, for unbelievers, also for, for believers too. They've been used as a means of oppression and abuse in the past. So what do we do? Do we get rid of them? Get rid of some of them? What do we do with the law? So we want to take the Ten Commandments that are kind of floating around in the air as an idea or a concept and ground them in the Exodus story today to see what they are about and what they mean for us today. Does that sound good? Well, let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, Holy God, we come before you knowing that we need a word from you. As we look to these ten words, we ask that, that they would be words to us, that you would speak to us by your spirit. It wouldn't be me speaking here this evening, spouting my opinions, but that your word would really um, impact our lives and our hearts, our very beings, and that we would be changed because we see what you are like, who you are, and really what you've done for us. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So to engage with the Ten Commandments properly, we need to see them afresh. To do so, I'm going to suggest today that we need to see before the Ten Commandments, okay? we need to see behind the Ten Commandments, and then we need to see beyond the Ten Commandments. Okay? Be before, behind, and then beyond. Because if there's a different perspective on the law that gives a different perspective on God that, that, than one that we're used to, then maybe, just maybe, there's a different perspective we can live by. So firstly, we need to see before the Ten Commandments. What do I mean? What do I mean? Before the Ten Commandments, there's a, a small little phrase, blink and you'll miss it. 
It's easy to kind of get taken aback by the Ten Commandments. They're so grand, aren't they? So much that you miss the beginning. There's a phrase that comes before the list that says this in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's what happens before we get the list. And the context is that we're halfway through the book of Exodus, uh, which is the, the people of Israel's um, exodus, leaving, departure from slavery in Egypt. The Israelite people, the people of God, had been mistreated, oppressed, and enslaved by their apprehensive and cruel um, Egyptian rulers. So much so that they cry to God, save us, help us, rescue us. And the good news of Exodus is this, God hears their cry, comes to their aid, sends Moses, empowers him, rescues them from Pharaoh, and takes them through the Red Sea into the wilderness where they were to, to worship him. You see, if you read from the beginning of Exodus, you wouldn't be in any doubt who the hero was. You may have seen the film, The Prince of Egypt, right? Where um, the story is told of the 10 plagues that God sent on the ruler of, of Egypt and his people uh, for the way they were treating his people. So there were a plague of frogs, darkness, blood, uh, escaping through the Red Sea. Almost unbelievable scenes uh, that go on there. It leaves us sure that it wasn't the Israelites who got themselves out. It was in an act of um, God's action. It's an act that God's uh, people remember today and celebrate. God was the hero. So coming to our passage today, the key for our correct orientation of the Ten Commandments today is this, to start at the start, to see before the Ten Commandments. Just like you need um, to watch the opening of Star Wars, otherwise you wouldn't know this, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it's a period of civil war, rebel spaceships, blah, 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 right? You need to see that. You need to watch the beginning. Otherwise, you kind of come in cold. You're like, what is going on here? That's what I thought for much of my life. God says, before the Ten Commandments, I have saved you. Now have the law. He says, I have already rescued you. Now listen to my guidance. I have already shown you that I love you. I'll protect you. Now please listen to me. The order is significant because it turns upside down the order that we usually think of when it comes to coming before God. We think that we need to kind of have done all the right things. We need to have um, uh, cleaned ourselves up, uh, done the right things. We need to have kind of uh, done our quiet times in the morning. We need to have said sorry to all the people we need to before we kind of come before God. And we see this order here that God first loves them before any of that is required of them, before God and gives them his commands. He says, before the law, I freed you. Before the law, I've got you out of slavery. Before the law, I've led you to freedom. Before they'd done anything, God had done everything. Before talking about what they were supposed to do, they are reminded about what God had already done. We are to see before the Ten Commandments God's gracious action, God's gracious action to them. And we are to see before anything that we do that God acts first in grace. We are to see what God has done before we come to see that what, all that we are supposed to do. And so therefore, if it's a difference between done and do, those two letters make all the difference, don't they? Done and do. There's only two letters, N and E. They make a huge difference in terms of how we see God how we see what we are to do, what our part in this is. God has done everything for them. He has set them free. He has rescued them. 
and that's what he had done first. Here's a passage from the, ki- the children's storybook Bible that our kids use at kids' church. Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible is not mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. What had God done? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We've seen that they didn't really lift a finger to do this in real terms in their exodus. All that happened from plagues to Passover lambs to um, the parting of the Red Sea to providing food and water, up till now, it had been grace. God's undeserved favor, it was his grace upon them. Deuteronomy 7 kind of commentates on this, gives a, a little assessment of this. It says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And so grace means undeserved favor, unmerited gift. It's something that was given to them, not because of them, but because of God. He chose them, not because they were clever or pretty or numerous. It was grace. He chose them because he chose them. Grace. He loved them because he loved them. It's grace. He rescued them, well, because he rescued them. It was grace. It was God's gracious action. God didn't say to them, follow these rules. He didn't give it to them in Egypt, did he? He gave them once they were out of Egypt. Follow me before you follow the rules. He had rescued them and then gave them this law. It was his gracious action first. So God saying to them, I've already rescued you. Would you now live for me? I already love you. Would you live as love people for me? And he says the same to us. He says the same to us today. He offers that same love and rest today. I've been trying to use a liturgy with my son before he goes to bed at night. Things have changed at different points, whether it's me or Miriam doing different things. But um, over the course of of his life at various points, I've tried to do this uh, nighttime blessing of love. Um, Let me share that with you. I think it kind of demonstrates a little of what God is wanting to tell the Israelite people by saying, I've saved you. I love you. Now rest in that love. So it's a kind of... um, dialogue between parent and child. Do you see my eyes? Yes. Can you see that I see your eyes? Yes. They're supposed to say yes. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just laugh and kind of try to avoid your eyes, right? But um, the point is, still stands. Can you see that I see your eyes? Yes. Do you know that I love you? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? Yes. Who else loves you? like that. God does. Even more than me? Yes. Now rest in that love. I wonder if you know this. That God doesn't think, oh, you've read your Bible today. I'm going to love you more. You didn't help that old lady cross the road today. Sorry, I'm going to love you less. 
There's nothing we can do to make him love us anymore. There's nothing we can do to make him love us less because God loves first, God loves most, God loves deepest. I wonder what comes first for you. God's gracious action, his liberation and his love or the weight of his commands? I wonder, do you feel more free and loved or bound by duty and pressure? Henry Nouwen says this. The first love says, you are loved long before other people can love you or you can love others. You are accepted long before you accept others or receive their acceptance. You are safe long before you can offer or receive safety. Home is the place where that first love dwells and speaks gently to us. It requires discipline to come home and listen, especially when our fears are so noisy that they keep driving us outside of ourselves. But when we grasp the truth that we already have a home, we may at last have the strength to unmask the illusions created by our fears and continue to return again and again and again. Would you allow this first love, this first rescue, this first action of God to be your home, to be your default, to be where you begin and where you return? We are to see before the Ten Commandments, before they're given, that little phrase, to see God's gracious action of love and of liberation. And so before we come to the second point, we should memorize the Ten Commandments together, okay? Here's something to help you. I learned this week in my preparation, you're going to need to use your fingers, so get them ready if you can, okay? You shall have no other gods before me. One finger, no other gods, just one, okay? No other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image. This is kind of like an image, right? Don't do that. So put up your other index finger. You shall not make carved images of this god, okay? Third is this, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God or take it in vain. So cover that mouth, right? Do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Fourth, remember the Sabbath day. So make a little pillow there for you because you're having a little rest there, you're having a little nap, okay? Fifth, to use all five fingers and you salute your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. Sixth, you shall not murder, okay? You shall not murder. <laughs> Okay? Don't murder. Whatever you do. Don't take that from, from, from this, this morning, okay? Uh, seventh is this. You shall not commit adultery as a, a married woman. Don't do this. Don't, don't split the married couple, okay? Um, eight is this. You shall not steal. Okay? You shall not steal. Okay? Nine. You shall not bear false witness. You shouldn't use false scales. Right? You shouldn't say there's five when there's four or four when there's five. Don't bear false witness. And ten, you shall not covet. You shouldn't grab other people's things. Okay? You shouldn't want your neighbor's stuff. Glad you're really enjoying it at the back there, <laughs> particularly for you. That's very encouraging for me. Thank you. So there you go. You know it. Right? Try and remember that afterwards. There may or may not be a test next week. Um, so come prepared uh, for that. Ten solid commandments. Ten uh, commandments that were set in stone for them. John Calvin, the great reformer, talks about three uses of the law. The law is a mirror um, that we see ourselves in, mirror of our hearts. A shackle kind of restraining evil in society. And finally, a, a rule of life for the Christian. There's immense value in the law. 
In Psalm 1, we're told to, to delight and meditate on it. And through that, we'll become like streams of water. We become like a tree planted by streams of water, right? They stood the test of millennia. But how are we to see them rightly? We are to see before them, and we are to see behind them, secondly. Okay? We are to see behind the Ten Commandments. As we see behind the Ten Commandments, we see God's gracious revelation. You'll see that some of these commandments give reasons for their existence. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because I am the only God who rescued you from Egypt. No other God did that. I am the only God. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Why? Because he's a jealous God, an incomparable God, an uncarvable God. Some of them don't give reasons, but they have reasons. Keep the Sabbath holy. Commit one day of your week to rest because God's in charge. He rested. The one who didn't need to rest, rested and points us to true rest in the new creation. Honor your father and mother. Why? Because God is the true father who they are to represent to the children. You shall not murder. Why? Because God is the giver of life and gives great value to life. You shouldn't commit adultery. Why? Because God is a faithful God who loves in sickness and in health. You shall not steal. Why? Because God's a giving God. Don't give false testimony. Why? Because God is a God of truth. You shall not covet. Why? Because God is the giver and relationships are not to be reduced to things. So the Ten Commandments then are, uh, are a revelation of a gracious God to those who are God's people. Remember that this God who said to Moses in the burning bush at the beginning of Exodus, I am who I am, is through Exodus revealing who he is. He is who he is, revealed in action and rescue, but also here revealed too in commands and in law as well. This is what he's like. He's saying to them, be like me. They were to be formed into this kind of, by, by this kind of God. You see, the Israelites had been slaves for 400 years. So the Israelites who were hearing this for the first time, their great-great-grandparents had been slaves, and then all the way down to them. Generation to generation, they'd been slaves. No dignity, no true sense of identity for all those generations that had been formed into their bones. Their bodies had been used and abused. Their sense of selves were confused, refused. They'd become slaves and had remained slaves for, for 400 years. And so now, now that they were free, how were they to live as free people? You could get the people out of slavery pretty quickly, but you couldn't get the slavery out of the people quickly. Sometimes it's hard to be free. Many of you will have seen uh, the Shawshank Redemption. I won't ask who hasn't because um, that would probably embarrass you, but you should. <laughs> one of the characters, not one of the main characters, illustrates this well, I think. It's a guy called Brooks. He'd been in prison for 50 years. And when he hears that he has been given parole, that he can leave prison soon, he doesn't rejoice at the prospect of freedom. No, he takes a knife to someone's neck thinking, if I kill someone here, maybe I can stay here. I won't be forced to leave prison. But his friends get him to put the knife down. He gets to leave. But when he leaves prison, he ends up working at a supermarket, bagging groceries. But being in prison for 50 years has meant that life has overtaken him and continues to overtake him. And in his overwhelm, he doesn't know how to adjust to the realities of a new world, and soon after his release, we see that he takes his own life. Fifty years in prison 
released, and then takes his own life. What happens when we are so used to prison that any notion of freedom feels like bondage to us? Israel felt that, and I think we often feel that too. God wants, though, to form his people and give them a new dignity and identity. After being saved, God wants to give significance. After the rescue, God wants to instill the reason for their liberation. And so in chapter 19, 5 and 6, the Preston preached last week on, God says to them, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Beyond freeing them from Egypt, God wanted, them, wanted to restore them to something, to free them for something. They've been slaves for 400 years with identity kind of snapped, stamped out of them. But God says, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, my treasured possession. I have an identity for you that the world cannot give and the world cannot take away from you. He wanted them to be free to have this new identity, this new assignment, this new purpose. And to show to the surrounding world these truths, he gives them these commands. Their identity as slaves was embedded in their bones. They didn't know what it was like to be free people. But these laws were given to them as a means of resistance. They'd been in chains for 400 years. They were defined by what they produced, what they did. They didn't know what it meant to be free people. And now God was inviting them to a new way a way that would allow them to resist the ways they had been malformed. You see, the Ten Commandments are part of a gracious revelation and a divine invitation, not celestial oppression. You see, rather than the Ten Commandments being this kind of ogre or troll stopping us from crossing the bridge, the Ten Commandments are like someone welcoming us to cross the bridge and being our guide in the land, telling us about themselves and the beauty of their land, See, the word for law in the Old Testament means instruction and has connotations of intimacy, a good parent instructing their child for good. God is good. These laws are not chains and shackles that stop us being ourselves. This is the lie that we're, we're told. God's rule and rules are actually the means that enable us to be ourselves, to be fully human. Have you ever played a game that has no rules? It lasts about 48 seconds. No one knows what to do and there's no purpose and usually there's a clashing of heads. Training, rules, white lines, goals, nets, jumpers for goalposts are not shackles to stop our fun but actually to give us freedom. Notice that when rules are given as you shall not do this, there's actually a freedom from that because then you can kind of do lots of other things. The question for you is this. What of God's revelation is supposed to give you freedom and life, but you have seen as restriction? What in your life? What of God's re revelation is supposed to give you freedom and life, but actually you've seen for many years now, perhaps, as a restriction? I wonder what it would look like for you to open up ever so slightly to that today. That there's something new that he's inviting you into. So we are to see before the Ten Commandments to see God's gracious action, behind the Ten Commandments to see God's gracious revelation, and finally, beyond the Ten Commandments to God's gracious solution. We are to look beyond the Ten Commandments to God's gracious solution. We're to look beyond the Ten Commandments, and we're to look at two horizons, okay? The first is right after the Ten Commandments, 
and the other is way after the Ten Commandments. We've seen that God's heart is one of grace, gracious action and gracious revelation. He rescued the Israelites and through the law reveals himself to them. Yeah, this doesn't stop them from breaking the commands, does it? And it's the same with us. Thousands of years have passed and it's still the same. The heart of the, the human problem is the problem of the human heart. God had given them this law, but it wasn't the final word. The law itself is inadequate. Look at what happens straight after the law is given. There is even here a gracious solution. We know something significant is happening when it says this, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. The people then said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses was the middleman. God continued to be gracious and used uh, Moses as the spokesperson. Really, Moses was the mediator for the people. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people couldn't approach themselves. They needed someone else to do it for them. Not only that, but something else was needed. Straight after the Ten Commandments, the smoking mountain and the darkness, we read of a need for sacrifice. Verses 23 to 26 show a sacrifice was also needed. Let me read verse 24. An altar of earth ye shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So straight after God had given them the law, he already knew that they were going to break it. The Lord God tells them about the need for sacrifices. It's like that he knew that on their own, the law would lead to death, separation and distance from God. And even after the, the, the reading of these commands, he's gracious enough to tell them what they need. He provides for them. There is grace in anticipation of their fear and of their failure. Now, isn't that interesting that it comes just after the reading of the Ten Commandments? But Moses and animal sacrifices were just shadows. There's a second horizon we look to as we look beyond the Ten Commandments. The reality was to come, and he has come in Jesus Christ. Jesus is portrayed in the New Testament as the true and better Moses. And here we glimpse why. Jesus is the true spokesman who speaks the words of God. He is the word of God himself. He is the true mediator, the way of God, who approaches darkness as the people remain at the distance in order to bring us close to God without our need to die. He is the true and perfect sacrifice for sin. He's the only one who could be called the unfiled, undefiled, pure Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the horizon we're to look beyond the Ten Commandments and to see. John 1, 16 and 17 says this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now I'm not sure, I don't think it's saying here that there's no grace in the law. It's just saying that there's more in Jesus Christ. There is grace throughout the scriptures, and we've seen that even in the Ten Commandments here. There's already grace in the law through Moses. Grace abounds even here, even in the law that we kind of uh, tremble at and wonder at and kind of cower at because we know our own insufficiency. Grace abounds even in the law. That's why when grace and truth come through Jesus Christ, 
It was the fullness. It was grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. If grace can be seen so surely as we see the Ten Commandments in this new light, how much more grace comes when the fullness of Jesus comes. There truly is grace upon grace. I quoted the Jesus Storybook Bible. I might as well do it again. They couldn't do it, no matter how hard they tried. They can never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all the rules. Many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them. Because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them. It was grace upon grace. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments, of the whole law. He's the only one who ever on this planet perfectly obeyed the law of God. Every last I, um, every last T crossed and dotted. And yet, here's the crazy thing. He's the one sacrificed in our place. He is the gracious solution. He is the only solution. Anglican priest Paul Zal describes it like this. Like this. Let me finish with this quote. I'm a little like a duck hunter who was hunting with his friend in a wide open barren of land in southeastern Georgia. Far away in the horizon, he noticed a cloud of smoke. Soon, he could hear the sound of crackling. A wind came up and he realized the terrible truth. A brush fire was advancing his way. It was moving so fast that he and his friend could not outrun it. The hunter began to rifle through his pockets. Then he emptied all the contents of his knapsack. He soon found what he was looking for, a book of matches. To his friend's amazement, he pulled out a match and he struck it. He, he lit a small fire around the two of them. Soon they were standing in a circle of blackened earth, waiting for the brush fire to come. They did not have to wait long. They covered their mouths with their handkerchiefs and braced themselves. The fire came near and swept over them, but they were completely unhurt. They weren't even touched. Fire would not burn the place where fire had already burned. The law is like the brush fire. I cannot escape it. But if I stand in the burned over place where law has already burned its way through, then I will not get hurt. Not a hair of my head will be singed. The death of Christ is that burned over place. There I huddle, hardly believing yet relieved. Christ's death has disarmed the law. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Christ. There's no surer way to live and to be like free people but to trust in this grace that comes upon grace, upon grace. Let's have a moment of quiet and I'll lead us in a moment of prayer.